Hello and welcome, welcome to episode 104 of Kaiju Curry House. I'm your regular host, Joe, and tonight I am joined by creature designer extraordinaire, Peter Koenig. Peter, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing tonight? Or today, I should Very say, well. your time zone. Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for uh, inviting me on. Very yeah, cool. well, it is absolutely my pleasure, and we have a load of great questions for you tonight, and hopefully we'll hear some really cool information about the creature development process. So... We like to start with everybody's favorite dad pun, mine included. What have Kaiju been up to? Peter, I got to pick on you. So what have you been doing recently that is within the realm of large, dangerous, scaly things or monsters? I mean, large, scaly things and creatures of various kinds. I, I work at a game studio, so I'm on the development team there. and We're working on a new game. It's uh, probably Monsters and Cauldron Studios. And uh, so been designing creatures behind the scenes and in solitude as we're developing this new game. Um, so yeah, creatures are kind of an everyday thing for me. Do we get to know what the game is? Not yet. Not yet. Oh, bummer. Yeah. We're, so we're they are scaly or are they kind of like shambly or are they like every, every, every shape and form you can think of. There's just a lot of them. So yeah. very cool. All right. So to explain your role, you've worked on pretty much everybody's favorite films. At least if you're listening to this podcast, I'd hope to think that some of these are your favorite films. You've been involved with Jurassic Park. You've been involved with Starship Troopers, Cloverfield, Dragonheart, which we want to talk about a lot tonight, and a variety of other fantastic uh, films. So you want to walk through what you do? Yeah, sure. I um, well, currently I'm I'm doing a lot of concept in 3D, but I started out um, in the early days, in the uh, the 80s, being wanting to be a creature shop guy, doing um, physical physical um, creatures, costumes, and that sort of thing. Uh, back in the animatronics days, and um, I mean, it's still it's still a thing, but um, but back then that was the only game in town if you wanted to make uh, creatures and work on movies. So um, I, I kind of started with that in mind. Um, primarily, I was interested in being a sculptor and um, kind of taking any kind of creature job I could get. And um, yeah, started off with low-budget movies. And you know, my my area was kind of near special makeup effects in the early days. Um, I didn't do a lot of makeup myself, but. Um, that's kind of where I, I got going with like, you know, low budget zombie movies and things like that. And so um, suit makeup effects is kind of weird. Yeah, and puppets and whatever. Um, yeah, because I was inspired by like the same stuff. A lot of people were inspired, you know, my generation, you know, like the Star Wars and Dark Crystal and all that stuff. It's like I wanted to figure out how to get into that from a very young age. And um, so, yeah, that's where I started was um, film and 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 gravitated towards sculpting after uh messing around with lots of things as a kid and um yeah that's where so i what, that's where i got going so what kind of materials do you, do you mess around with as a kid so were you like into clays did you yeah like... yeah i mean back then it was not much information on how things were done so you there's a lot of experimentation and bedroom messes in you know in your bedroom and your mom's uh, kitchen and stuff like that. 
trying out different materials and things you've heard of, foam rubber and, um, you know, melting clay and getting it on the carpet, all that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, it's like, like back then, pre-internet, you know, there just wasn't tons of info. So you really had to like, you know, look at magazines and the rare, you know, the rare TV uh, show about the making of a particular movie or something like that or TV show. And you just sort of made it up and um, gradually acquired the knowledge, uh, minimal knowledge, really. It was really hard to, uh, you know, get very sophisticated as a teenager. But um, yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was just a lot of messing around. I mean, when I was really young, I used to make like articulated masks out of just like masking tape, you know, and cardboard and or foam rubber, you know, like get out of some. I feel like I'm nervous to ask this because a significant amount of teenagers listen to this podcast, but where does a teenager get foam rubber? Oh, just like the kind of stuff you see in a mattress or, you know, an old old sofa, you know, and, you know, you hear through uh, hints here and there. It's like, oh, the Henson people, they they use, you know, they use like... uh, uh, electrics electric knife like you would use for thanksgiving on the foam rubber to, to kind of carve and shape it and so i would get my mom's electric knife and this old foam rubber and try to try to do it myself and have all kinds of problems because i don't know what i'm doing and yeah it was just a real like tape and rubber bands kind of beginning um, i really like, enjoy like your, your parents strategy there let's give him an electric knife <laughs> the mattress and flip yeah <laughs> it's one of those things that doesn't really cut you but it will cut the cooked turkey so it wasn't too dangerous, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, or you know, like you know, exacto knives and things like that, and cutting foam rubber up, and there are definitely some accidents here and there, but not too many. So you've brought up uh, basically Jim Henson uh, mm-hmm. twice now already. Was he a major influence? Totally. Yeah. Early, early on. I mean, I was one of the kids that they made Sesame Street for back in the uh, what was it? It came out in like '69 or '70. So I was like the uh, the three or four year old at that age um, that it was sort of pointed at, and just the um, I think early on just those great puppets and things like that really kind of sparked my imagination. Um, they're just so uh, you know well crafted and acted, and you know depending on your your personality as a little kid, sometimes things just sort of grab hold of you, and. Um, but then at the same time, you know, they're always showing old Ray Harryhausen movies on TV and uh, Godzilla, of course. I see all your Godzilla stuff back there. Godzilla is a huge... I think the first thing I sculpted in clay was um, an attempt at Godzilla. Uh, like at yeah, first he's a, To be fair, his tripod stance makes him a pretty easy target for an early sculptor. Yeah, I didn't even start with the whole body. I remember doing just like a... Like I, was, I, I remember his foot and legs so much from you know the squashing of buildings. I, I think I started off just sculpting a big clawed foot in um, elementary school. And um, yeah, that, that's the, kind of the stuff that keyed me off back then. And there were just a lot of great movies that they would run on TV on the weekends and stuff. You know, Planet of the Apes, you know, their great makeups or, you know, all those, all those kinds of things um, kind of sparked my imagination. But Hanson in particular, you know, it's like his stuff got more and more sophisticated over the years in the movies and the Muppet show, like the Muppet show had such great, you know, big costumes and things. And there were just, there was just kind of, um, 
there's kind of a magic to uh, how that stuff was constructed and 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 and, and filmed and worn. You know, like the the players who wore the stuff um, really brought it to life, and it just wasn't obvious how it was done. And I think just the mystery of um, that stuff and how it was created was really uh, interesting at the time and got me, you know, more and more interested as time went on. And then, you know, his other films came out, Dark Crystal in particular, and, you know, that stuff was just so incredible, especially for the time, you know, it's like we look at it now and we're more sophisticated uh, in our viewing and we can kind of tell, you know, rubber puppets and all that stuff, but just the, the world building and the storytelling and, the depth of the world, you know, it had the, more. That's the, the thing. detail it really felt real, you know, even though watching it when it was a new thing, it, sure. You knew it was puppets and costumes, but your, your mind kind of lets you believe in the world, you know? So yeah, that stuff was fantastic. And, you know, for a cr kind of a naturally creative kid, it really lit a fire in my head. So to ask you a question that might follow you around the rest of your life, um, who is your favorite Muppet? Mm. Uh, that's a good question. Favorite Muppet. Um, I'm going to say you can't go vanilla and say Kermit. <laughs> no, no, no. Kermit was kind of like the straight man. Uh, I think Gonzo, really. Gonzo is a solid pick. Mine is Fozzie Bear. I'm... Fozzie Bear, I mean, they're hard to beat, right? I like the articulation in Gonzo, though. He had the eyelids and stuff like that. Whenever they yeah. had like a little bit of motion in their in their faces, I really enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's really it's hard to pick. They they had such great um, actors for those things, and um, yeah, incredible. Uh, Grover, yeah, Grover is not from the Muppet Show, but man, that that character was such a big part of my childhood. I just loved that guy. If we're talking Sesame Street, I'm going to go with Mr. Snuffleupagus, who it took me oh, to yeah. my, it took me to my adult me out, life. Man. My adult life, I found out that he was Big Bird's imaginary friend. Oh, really? He didn't realize that it, part? It, it took me that long, honestly. Yeah. But, that... you know, the things that you find out. So when I think about, like, all the creatures that you've been involved with, have any characteristic traits say from like Jim Henson or Harry Hausen leaked into any of your designs is there like a favorite thing I've always noticed that with Harry Hausen he liked beaks so like the emir from 20 million miles from earth originally it was supposed to have a beak and he has lots of beaked creatures and I've noticed that that kind of bleeds into a lot of the designs sure. is there a is there a favorite hallmark design that you would say has gone into any of yours not really a particular feature like that but um i mean i think one of my biggest inspiration was rick baker and with his uh, makeup effects through the 80s and um i think the thing that always stuck with me and really inspired me back then was just the level of realism that he was able to get yeah we've talked about uh, rick several times yeah and um like his stuff was some of the first stuff I saw that felt very believable um, just as sculptures, you know, these natural qualities you would put into the, the clay sculptures. Um, 
a lot of makeup effects people know this one image of, that Rick had in like, I think it was Fangoria or uh, Cinefx of him sculpting this troll character. And um, it's just this head on a, that he's sculpting. And, and there's like these details around the ears, you know, skin folds and um, the weight of the skin and stuff like that. And it was kind of seeing these like very fine, believable details that kind of ingrained in me that I, I really uh, wanted to pursue just like believability and naturalism in the stuff I did. And um, the, I think the thing that I've tried to carry through everything I do, whether it's very stylized or realistic is just um, a level of character in the, the look and the feeling, even looking at something that's not moving, that it has a history or an inner life to it. And it's not just, um, I didn't, I never wanted to make anything that felt generic or lifeless, even mm -hmm. if it's kind of scary and outlandish. I'm trying to get a certain level of natural, you know, I, I, I want someone to think that this has a, this, this creature has a behavior and an intelligence of some kind behind it. Um, that's kind of linked to the natural world. So that's the kind of stuff that kind of stuck with me is like the character. I don't know what the term would be for it, but the, the characterness of a creature or a character, you know, a, a more humanoid character. The anthropomorphizing um, or the characterization? Would that be a better? No, that, that kind of lends to like, you know, putting human traits on things, but, but more like, um, you know, you believe this thing has a life beyond what you see, you know, uh, Building a soul into the character. Yeah, say. a bit of depth to the character, whatever it happens to be. Um, some things don't need it as much if you're doing like a fish or something, but uh, yeah, <laughs> you don't want it to look too uh, thoughtful. But um, but yeah, just that level of naturalism and believability has always been sort of something I've leaned into when it was appropriate. You know. So taking that train of thought, so you were involved in Jurassic Park, which is if you talk about special effects, you kind of have to mention Jurassic Park right. at this point because it was trend setting in yeah. both practical and digital effects, I feel. Right. So when you talk about imbuing character into creatures, Jurassic Park for me seems like a really good takeoff point with that because on the one hand you have animals and I'm aware that you had, I think it was Jack Horner, who was the paleontological advisor for Jurassic Park. And he wanted to stick very rigidly to the science, but at the same time, you have to give the creature a certain character. You could argue now in Jurassic World Dominion, we have really come quite far with that because we have raptors being somewhat friendly with people. Mm. But um, I dare say like, the anti-hero of the franchise, the big female T-Rex, Rexy or Roberta, whichever way you swing there, um, she has a character. So what character traits did you bring in creature design, would you say, to Jurassic Park? Or were you going for straight accuracy there? Yeah. Well, for me, I didn't do any any creature design on Jurassic Park. Okay. I was involved in... Um, the animatronics? I, I brought in... I was brought to her to, to tip it for... Um, back before it was a CG film and originally it was going to be um, stop motion puppets. Yeah. A lot of people, by now a lot of people know the story, how 
Spielberg and um, decided to go with the ILM uh, techniques after she he saw those tests that we all saw back then. And um, so my job originally was to take Stan Winston's uh, sculpts, make molds of them, and do the foam running and mold making and painting uh, to match the, the large scale puppets that they made. And um, for the Tippet stub motion animators to, uh, we would, you know, put animation rigs in these puppets and they'd be animated. So originally my job was very different and uh, it was more fabrication and mold making. Right, right. Um, and like within a couple of weeks of getting my job at Tippet, uh, everything changed on us. And um, suddenly I wasn't doing the same thing anymore. Uh, what my job turned into, though, is uh, working on. We still made the molds and 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 roughly painted up these these um, dinosaur puppets, but it was for the animatics, which sort of scoped out these um, bigger CG shots that they were doing. And you know, part of it was because the stuff was so hard to do back then. Having some moving storyboards like we made with the stop motion was a huge help to. Uh, kind of compose these shots and figure them out ahead of time. Almost um, like rotoscope. No, not really. It's more like um, storyboarding but with the added bonus of motion. Um, because yeah, they so had... like you had that and then the animators would come in and essentially like use that as a jumping platform, so to speak. Well, even before they filmed the live action that went around it, you know, it's like, what is this shot? Let's plan where the actors are going to stand. How big is this creature going to be? So it would help them sort of frame up the shot and um, get everything uh, together. So on the day, they, they know what they're filming and they know where they're aiming with the visual effects later down the road. And um, because back then it was like so t tedious time-wise and expense-wise to, you know, right now you can um, rattle off CG shots much quicker. But back then it was all like just beginning really and um all these things took so much more effort so luckily we were our comp our, our shop was able to previs all these things for some of the key sequences and eventually actually animate some of the, re the actual shots in the film but yeah my job was just to um you know mold and cast uh the foam rubber stuff um with a few other folks that were there at the time um, so to and which is just kind of uh, interesting to be a fly on the wall during this big change that happened. I'm sure. Um, yeah. I got another question for you then, though. So you said you painted a few of the dinosaurs, or at least like the puppets that you were using. Yeah. So I haven't read it because I've got the dog-eared copy of Making of Jurassic Park uh, nice. in my little library. The color decisions for the dinosaurs. I've never seen anything about that. I've mm. seen like, we took the Dilophosaurus's frill from a frilled lizard. I've seen like yeah. Jack Horner hated like the tongue Velociraptors, you know, like a monitor right. lizard, like little decisions like that. Like, okay, we've got documentation on that, but you as a person was there, was there any creative decision that you ever saw? Or like, as like when you were painting these maquettes, did someone say like, we want the T-Rex to be brown because... Yeah, I wasn't in on the discussions at Stan Winston's studio at all, but um, I'm sure part of their thought process was to kind of keep things low key and not too extravagant looking and um, kind of find a naturalistic uh, texture and pattern to uh, apply to these things. I think I think the fact that they were in the frame at all was kind of ex you know exciting enough. They didn't have to make them too crazy in color. 
but I'm sure there were lots of discussions they had about, you know, where to go with these things. Cause they don't know, obviously they can only sort of um, make, make educated guesses um, based on animals today. So that's, yeah, I think just one of those I, things, but I think they were smart keeping it kind of low key and not going too crazy with some of the, um, you know, the larger creatures. It seems like the larger an animal is in the real world, the less extravagantly colored they are, mm-hmm. uh, depending on their role in the, you know, the pecking order and the uh, food chain, you know, the level of camouflage versus not needing camouflage, exactly. all these things. I'm sure they had long chats about it, but for us, it was just like, there's the stand stuff and we're just going to roughly copy it so that, you know, our shots are not completely different looking. Right. Yeah, so, I, was such a junior, I was such a junior guy there. I think I was like 23 years old or something or 22. Something what a job, like though. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was great. It was a it was a lucky break and weirdly timed sort of situation because I had worked across the street at another effect shop in L.A., um, from Stan Winston's studio and I had friends at Stan's and I, I would, when this was starting to happen, I started hearing stories from people who worked over there across the street at lunches and things like that. And it, uh, just the hints of what was happening and what the movie was going to be where it was kind of crazy. Like a number of us sort of thought, you know what, you know, from what we're hearing, it sounds like we need to buy computers, you know, and start learning this stuff. Yeah, I read uh, on one of your, it's ArtStation, I think, that um, you took uh, Phil Tippett's um, Mentality of Sink or Swim. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. But, you know, it was also fun. It wasn't just survival, but um, it was exciting stuff and new stuff and very attractive to to learn. But, yeah, I I was working in L.A. at the time, and... um, as Jurassic was was gearing up, and I did try to get on the Stan Winston crew back then, but um, obviously his main guys had all the big sculpting jobs. And by the time I had heard about it, there weren't that many positions open. I think I heard about what they call a toes and tails job, possibly, nice. <laughs> which means here you sculpt this thing that's no one's going to see, you know, the bottoms of the feet or something like that. But even that, I never, I never got in the door, and it just so happened that Phil called, uh, called up for that job, and um, man- managed to get that job and move back up to the Bay Area, which is where I was from. So, yeah, it was a weird time and a weird bunch of uh, coincidences, and um, yeah, I was lucky to be around. Like just being around it as it was happening was kind of uh, enough for me. Were there any like awe-inspiring moments? Like, did you see like a life-size dinosaur like one day? Like, you walk in, it's just like, wowza! Do you have any moments um, like that you'd like to share? I just think um, we all, when we all saw the Jurassic, um, the uh, T-Rex tests that um, Steve Williams and Mark DePay were doing at ILM, you know, and we 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 had the footage uh, of those first tests at Tippett, and. Um, we all sat around watching this on a loop, you know, being replayed in, over and over again on film. And just that moment of like, because when you first saw, seeing it now, we all see the flaws and how imperfect it is. But at the time, it was so incredible and so obviously um, a heavy moment that it was just kind of awe-inspiring to see this big jump in technology 
and to know that no one else had seen it yet. Like you're kind of some of the first eyeballs to, to see this. Um, and just to kind of um, think about what this means for your, your job and the industry in general, like it, it's not like we had all that wisdom right off the bat. At first it was just, you're just kind of trying to make sense of it. And um, you're kind of worried about what it means for you, just like <laughs> as far as your day-to-day -day making a living goes. It's like, oh, they're changing everything we're doing. Okay, now what does that mean? Does that mean I'm out of work? And um, should I start looking for work elsewhere and all that kind of stuff? It was, um, it was a bit, you know, it's awe-inspiring and scary and, and impressive and like all these things happening at once. And um, it certainly was a big deal for Phil, obviously, because um, it really affected what, you know his livelihood and what he spent his whole life uh, getting good at was going to change. And um, you know, it's a it's an interesting moment to be a part of, even as a little junior shop guy there. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it's, it's, other than that, like visuals. I mean, just seeing the, the the Winston sculpts from the different folks, um, and the you know we had copies of a lot of the stuff in maquettes in the maquette scale um, up at up at Tippet, and um, just these great like I don't think I'd seen such well sculpted dinosaurs before, so um, seeing copies of that stuff in person and getting to really look at it and study it is really uh, pretty amazing. Um, I don't know if I was up to snuffed sculpt something like that myself at that at that age um but yeah just that stuff alone was pretty impressive it was also cool when we had paleontologists from berkeley come in and do these talks with the animators and sitting in on that and hearing their your opinions their opinions on dinosaur motion and all these things and um behavior that you know from what what they could put together as paleontologists um just getting to hear this stuff from the professionals was really a cool thing too. Yeah. It must've been really fun to be fair. I mean, to listen about like, whole yeah, bunch of really it was exciting. Yeah. It was like, it was exciting. Just lots happening and, uh, you know, big things changing and suddenly getting all these computers into the studio that, you know, you, we you thought you're, it's just like a, you and everyone else you're working with are suddenly turning on a dime and um, trying to adapt on the fly. You know, there's, there's like a lot of people have had the experience of work learning on the job, uh, not really being sure of what you're doing. And that was kind of like the whole studio at the time was like, let's all switch gears now at once and try to get this all to work. And um, it worked out in the end. Uh, it was super stressful for the, the folks running everything there. But, um, but yeah, it's just one of those rare times in your life where there's a lot happening and it's, it feels like big stuff. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's also a time in my career where I was learning a lot anyway, you know, learning to sculpt and learning to do all these different crafts and, um, and when you're, whenever you're learning a lot fast, it's kind of a fun time. Um, everything's very interesting. It's not all repetition and doing what you did last year and the year before over and over again in different ways. It's like everything new, you know. 
Yeah. Well, that was 93, as I understand it. So about three years later, we had Draco to tackle. And with the exception, I think, of the jaws and the hand, he was digital, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and you had a big hand in bringing him to life, or at least, you know, the design process of Draco, correct? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was uh, one of those interesting and lucky jobs that landed in my lap that, because I happened to be there at Tippett. And um, yeah, it was a it was a big it was a big one, you know, because we knew right off the bat that this is a lead character. Um, we'd already been doing the you know the Starship Trooper stuff and maquettes there, and um, uh, well, actually, I came after. But so, Dragonheart as a film, a lot of us have a very like warm sure. soft spot in our heart for this movie. Basically, you get to see a whole bunch of Harry Potter characters act really diabolical. Yeah, 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 yeah. About an hour and a half. But um, well, for a, a lot, lot of people, us... I, I run into a lot of people that grew up with that as their, their kid movie. Yeah, uh, so one of the things that I did when I was preparing for our interview tonight is I actually went on a site called commonsensemedia.com. Mm -hmm. And basically what this site is, is you can look at pretty much any movie. And is it... Or is it not kosher for kids to watch? And at what age should your kids gotcha. watch it? And what are the landmines in this film that you should look out for? Mm. Dragonheart, by far and large, passes a lot of tests. And it's kind of funny in that sense, because in terms of swearing, overt bloodshed, um, bad moral decisions things like that it's a very stick up for the right cause film and drug it's use. kind of like not too pardon? much drug use not too much uh, language and drug use and uh yeah it has <laughs> it has no drug use i think at one point at one point at a dinner table you might see a liquid which could be alcohol, might be wine <laughs> maybe get spilled over and most of like the dramatic deaths occur out of sight so like Einan's father the bad king he gets killed in the middle of a mob you don't see what they're doing with him you see all the sharp objects going up and down but you don't like see it yeah and Einan yeah. kills his mother but you don't see it so in a sense it's very disney-esque because you know like a character might fall off a cliff but you don't see you know like the thing well, it's just implied but yeah, so Common Sense Media rates Dragonheart at like an age 11. Mm -hmm. And it's been interesting to see the ratings for it change over time because when it came out, it was a PG-13 film. And right. now, at least in the United Kingdom where I'm at, it is a PG film. So it's dropped down a little bit in terms of like what can, you can watch. Now, I should also argue that Jaws has been rated pg and we know that that film traumatizes young children so parents at your own discretion but i think part of the magic of dragonheart is it gave 
like it gave kids a dragon that they could latch on to that wasn't scary and villainous like vermithrax or mm-hmm. maleficent and he wasn't goofy like elliot and pete's dragon he was a very noble character right and right, right. he's fantastic in that sense and of course sean connery gives him that great sly i've seen the world kind of mm-hmm. like not necessarily a holier than thou attitude but like i've been around and you're a youngling sort of vibe but i think i think the idea was kind of like they were he was they were both knights in one way or another you know which yeah. the dragon was as a knight in the sort of way that the um the night night was <laughs> so in the design process i've seen some of your early maquettes for draco some of like the designs that uh, were pitched to the director rob cohen and then like through process of elimination you're like i like the horns but can we make the, the nose bigger or stuff sure. like that you know like i've seen some of the process for that and at one point i think there was also an animatronic dragon that was produced for test screening of the picture because when um, dennis quaid and draco were talking around a, like a fire camp i think that that was used by the producer to get more funds for the film or to like just as kind of like a reel to show what this film could be, a dragon and a knight buddy copying it together. And mm. that dragon looks quite different from what Draco ended up being. That dragon oh. looks more like Safra from Aragon, I'd say. There's limited footage um, of it. I haven't seen this at all. Yeah. Oh yeah, know. it's got kind of like a beaky snout. It's got like a long mm. slender neck. It's just kind of like what you'd imagine just like, a wyvern or something like that, you know, to like look at, but it doesn't have Draco's facial structure or stockiness, I should say. Right. So where, so where did we start with Draco? Um, Well, the design process was, um, how do I characterize it? Well, in the beginning, the idea was to do a bunch of two-dimensional designs, but the fact was that, I just couldn't draw well enough back then. Uh, that wasn't my focus. You know, I was more focused on three, three dimensional sculpting. So when Phil's like, you know, let's draw some, get some dragon designs on paper. And I started drawing, it's like, you know, this is not really what I do. Um, back then, uh, I, I presented these pick, these attempts at dragon design, um, to Phil. He's like, I can't present this, you know, this is just not, you know, cutting it and um yeah i'm like yeah i know i'm just i'm a sculptor i i i figure these things out in in three-dimensional ways and so we switched gears and i ended up doing a bunch of um super sculpty uh maquettes and really fast like i think uh very very rough form just very basic um shapes and um you know, cardboard cutout, you know, wings and things like that, just to kind of get a feel for the general shape and give a lot of uh, variations that the director could look at. Um, so I'll I mean, stop you, you right here. I was going to say, everybody, I was gonna say knows I what Super Sculpey is. <laughs> yeah, it's a polymer clay. That, yeah, so, yeah, it's polymer. Is it a two-part Super Sculpey? Nope. You just sculpt it, and then when you're ready, you, you stick it in the oven. Oh, okay, and right. Then it, it gets hard. I don't know if it would be helpful for people watching this 
Are there people watching this as well? Yeah, we put it up on YouTube for we have is a that lot can of, I, we have I can lot share my um I can share my art station page. Okay, okay. brilliant. So for art folks that are listening along, uh, Peter has gone to his art station page, which we will list in the description, and it shows a variety of fabulous things that he has been working on. Right. Okay. I'll try to make it descriptive for people listening. Um, anyway, way down here we have Dragonheart and a few old pictures. I don't have, um, unfortunately, I don't have pictures of all the maquettes we did back then. Um, a lot of them just got destroyed over the years because they were just mm -hmm. these small um, little uh, sculpts, maybe a few inches tall. But um, So this one that you're showing us now, it yes. looks pretty, it, to be fair, it looks pretty close to the final design. But right. what I would say is that Draco has kind of a crest going along the midline of his back, mm -hmm. which, I mean, I, I don't know if those are necessarily flowing spines or if they're rigid, but they all, I mean, like from this two-dimensional image, they almost look Godzilla-esque and like his plates going down the back. Not yeah. massive, not massive by any means, but they almost have that kind of like pointed tree star or not tree star, uh, Christmas tree uh, design. Yeah, a lot of all the details in this stage of the design process were all like placeholder level mm -hmm. details. The, the one thing, and I would say, I think this was from like the second round of stuff we showed the director. I, mm -hmm. I can't remember because it's ages ago, but we tried to emphasize the fact that this is a speaking character that had, you know, a mouth that would have to articulate and a mm -hmm. face that would have to act. So a lot of the emphasis was the fact that, you know, this guy would have to gesture with his arms in some way and, you know, act in a kind of, a, like we were saying, anthropomorphized way, some somewhat human, um, since he was going to have so much screen time. So this particular rough model was the one that the director gravitate, gravitated towards in terms of just basic, basic body shape and proportions. Um, it doesn't have any wings. It doesn't have a tail. If you turn this thing around, there's nothing sculpted on the back. You know, it's just like it's meant for rough. like one picture. Yeah, yeah, just one visual grab when you see it, and that's that hopefully will tell you what you need. And it just has a rough wash of paint over it. And um, so, yeah. And out of curiosity, what the, like yeah, how as far, far as the go ahead, sorry. I was just gonna say, as far as like details, like you're pointing out that crest and stuff. Like none of the details are really worked out. It was just kind of here's yeah. roughly what the arms and legs might be, and more, you know, the very very basics. Um, and then the details will be worked out later. So, how far into the design process was the decision made to give Draco a six limb, like classic dragon design, as opposed to what we see in the modern era with, like, say, Smog from The Hobbit? Where Smog has like hands, but they're also his wings, you know. So, right. when when did I we decide to give him proper like hands? Yeah, the the way I remembered it was that they really emphasized the acting side of what this guy had to do, mm -hmm. and the, the idea that they were going to be you know sitting by a campfire talking and things like that. And I think you know, I, it's it's hard to remember the specific conversations, but the general gist of it was this guy needs to um this creature needs to articulate and use his hands to speak and um you know lay down and still be able to 
you know, get into the frame with the actor and have kind of a believable conversation that's kind of, you know, emotional or whatever. And um, freeing up the arms seemed like uh, a thing to try at least. And mm -hmm. I think when Rob Cohen, the director, saw the particular design that sort of did that, because originally I, I had these in the earlier maquettes, um, I tried to make some of them realistic, like how big would the wingspan have to really be to lift this however many thousand pound creature in the air? And of course, it's like, you know, bigger than a 747's wingspan to really sell it. Um, so we knew that and they, they, they weren't going to go for that. So we knew we had to cheat it to a certain degree. Um, but yeah, like uh, focusing on the character side of the dragon was just kind of a, a necessary thing. Um, you had to believe it when you saw it acting and speaking and all this stuff. And it had mm -hmm. to have a personality and it had to reflect, you know, um, Sean Connery, uh, you know, you're hiring this famous actor, it should really feel like it could be, that voice could be coming out of this animal. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was an interesting puzzle to figure out. And um, it, a lot of it was done in the early part of the design process by throwing a lot of stuff at the wall and then getting feedback and then, you know, going at it again. Were there any classic dragons that you thought about when you were throwing ideas against the wall? Uh, none in particular. Uh, I definitely looked at all the stuff like the Vermithrax and things like that, but there weren't a lot of things to look at back then that I could kind of pull out of popular media. Um, there wasn't really a benevolent, realistic dragon up until this point, to be fair. Yeah. And I think, um, I, I ended up looking at a lot more dinosaur reference than anything else. You can see that in his hind feet for sure, at least on this maquette. Yeah, it was just kind of like, we need to sell this thing as realistic. So let's look at the best paleo art we can to kind of um, borrow from that as much as possible. And, um, and then um, once we got approval from this, it was a matter of fleshing it out and really um, going to town with the, the details and the, um, so like all of the plating came afterwards that was something that like once you got approval for like a general character design you went in and like gave him all of that beautiful scaled texture and like right. the spikes like the i don't know how what would you call them they're almost like pole spikes almost like along his back they're, they're yeah, almost the like, kind of conical kind yeah. of like, yeah, conical spikes and things and um armor plating of course and um you know, like right now I'm showing some old, old photos. It's a shame that weren't, we didn't take a lot more photos back then. It was just, um, the, 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 the emphasis was on getting the job done more than worrying about photography. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's no social media. There's no, like, they weren't really promoting this stuff. One of the uh, things that I, I've always loved about Draco are how his horns frame his face. Was there yeah. like a conscious decision about how his horns on his head were going to be laid out? Yeah, for sure. There was um, a sense that it, he was kind of a kingly and like a regal figure that we were going to use the horns almost like a crown. Um, a lot of the de design 
tips and suggestions came from Phil and um, also the visual effects designer, uh, supervisor Craig Hayes was there, he's a great designer. And so if you look at um, Draco straight on, there's a lot of um, directionality to the, the horns. They're not just randomly placed here and there. There's like, uh, there's an attempt to guide the eye towards um, the center of the face mm -hmm. from the direction the horns go. So that's almost like a, a bunch of arrows. He also has kind of like a ridge line right above his nose, above his snout too. Mm -hmm. Again, it like, was that driving people towards the center of his face and his eye line again? Uh, yeah, I mean, all of it was, you know, we were looking at it and taking photographs of different angles and different lighting situations, trying to guess how it would be filmed. So it's like, let's make sure the eyes have a good read that is clear and um, let's make sure they don't get lost, you know? So you're kind of, um, when you're sculpting, you're using shadows and light to kind of see where these things fall and, you know, how they emphasize the various features. Um, I learned years earlier, you know, how to use really harsh lighting on your sculpture to kind of get a clear view of where shadows go and, um, what those shadows do to your the look of your design. Um, but yeah, in terms of framing the face, definitely. And um, we knew that there was gonna be a lot of close-ups. So the point was to, you know, really work on Get that, that character. Right. Yeah. yeah. I really uh, like the wings on Draco too. So in, in that maquette that you have right there with the outstretched wing, Mm -hmm. um, I looked at some of your maquettes and I didn't realize it until I looked at them that Draco has some purple and almost feather-like projections coming off of his wings. Did mm -hmm. those make it into the final cut? Because I watched the film recently and I didn't see them. I did notice, however, that they were on the toy line. So there were a couple of feathers on the wings um, or feather-like, blade-like kind of hard, they're like long scales, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm Almost like sure calloused memory from rubbing against the scales. Yeah, they're just sort of like elongated scales along the base of the wings that were almost trying to be feathers. Mm -hmm. um, I think that made it in. I, I haven't watched it for a while, so now I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on that. Um, the big thing about the wings was like, we wanted to make them as big as possible so that it wouldn't look silly that this thing could hover and fly and it um at the you same time like a hummingbird <laughs> well one big thing is they needed to fold up small enough mm -hmm. that um he could fit through certain areas and that the wings wouldn't dominate every shot so there's um a kind of an accordion folding trick to kind of cheat it smaller when they're closed um it i think it's still a, a bit of a hard sell that this those wings could hold him up in the air. So it's a bit of, um, you know. I think the animators did a great job belief. with that but, because um, they had him like gyrating in the air. He's really like flexing when he does it. I think that yeah, that helps sell it quite a bit. That really helps sell it. I think um, I, I would I would bet that they cheated the scale when appropriate. Yes, they definitely did. To, uh, I, I've shrink, seen that. <laughs> yeah, to shrink them down when it was the right time and stuff like that. Um, yeah, the wings were definitely a challenge. Um, on the big maquette, um, there's a guy named Ron Holthausen, Holthausen 
who's also sculpting on this job and he he kind of sculpted the the big you know wing for the scanning uh, model um because we just we just had to crank this thing out we didn't have much time to sculpt the large scanning model and that was an, that was another point for making these maquettes was um ultimately to have a um a large version of the maquette to bring on set for lighting reference and um, to give to ILM so they can build the actual uh, 3D models. Let's see if I can no, They look that. brilliant. I also love the color palette that Draco has. He's just like a lovely shade of like gold and brown with a few highlights there. And I think, again, that goes towards Regal rather than um, yeah. scary dragon vibes. That was Phil's idea was to kind of give this metallic uh quality to um again going back to your night. yeah exactly and um i think that was a great great thing that he came up with and um made him kind of unique you know this this particular thing that i'm showing now um, visually is um i think ireland gave it the nickname of uh, tippet's revenge and um the reason being it was so there was so much surface detail that you know, modeling this was a pain in the butt for them. Um, oh, <laughs> that was, the, it was, it was a petty revenge to put a gazillion scales in for the animators, was it? Well, it's not all, not only the scales, but like the amount of in and out and surface relief and the number of parts mm -hmm. and spikes and all this stuff. It was like kind of pushing the limits of what, what could be rendered and animated back then. It was, um, you know, it was a lot of information. I think I heard the statistic that this, um, the Draco model, the full high-res model had more vertices or somewhat close to the, all the, the amount of uh, polygonal, well, I don't think it was polygons. I think it was uh, NURBS back then, but it had as much um, vertex information as all the Jurassic Park dinosaurs put together in terms of wow. the, the size of the model. So things were advancing quickly, but yeah, I, I heard stories that the guys modeling this thing hated it because <laughs> it was just like so much work. And the the honest truth is like, I had no idea. I was just, you know, trying to design something cool looking. Um, it was never uh, intentionally overly complicated. What's your favorite design aspect about Draco? I just think the face works for what it was um, intended. You know, we knew we had... We didn't want to have just a beak that opened and closed and these, mm -hmm. you know, um, this voice would come out magically uh, from a, you know, kind of a, a static reptile, uh, a, uh, you know, non-moving mouth. Um, I think early on we knew that the, the lips would have to move to a certain degree to kind of sell the speech. One thing we looked at a lot was um, uh, apes. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, there's kind of a, if you look at them straight on, there's kind of a a swoop to the line of the mouth that kind of turns up like a gorilla. Mm -hmm, I was about to say. And I'm just going to turn off something real quick. There we go. So we've had a few questions for you, good sir, that have come from our listener base. Gotcha. And um, there's... A variety here there, there's no necessary rhyme or reason to them sure. so we have m bryant and uh, her question is 
is there any dream project that you would have loved to have worked on but didn't get the chance? Hmm. Uh, I'd really love to work on um, the Dune projects, Dune films. Uh, I, I can't go back in time and work and, and work on the original Star Wars, unfortunately. Um, th- that would be something for sure. Um, but yeah, working with uh, yeah, I was working on a dream project with Guillermo del Toro years ago that got put on the shelf for later. Um, so it's like I've gotten very close to working on you know quote unquote dream projects. Can we hear what that um, dream project may have been? Oh, that was Mountains of Madness, the uh, oh, right, Lovecraft yeah. film, and I think it was it's it's all public knowledge that we were working on that, so it's not like a secret or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was, you know, working with one of the greatest guys on one of the coolest projects for sure. Yeah, it's just a shame that it had to be um, put away for later. Uh, maybe I'll get another chance sometime in the future. Well, here's hoping. I was quite interested in that project, to be fair. So Don has uh, conversely asked, have there been any projects that you wish that you hadn't gotten involved in or turned out to be a nightmare? Yeah, plenty. A bit political, that question, but I'll rephrase it. (laughs) What project would you say was the most work that you weren't anticipating? Oh, I might have to pass. I think the projects that were like that were um, projects that I was on as an animator. Uh, You know, when you work at a studio that does visual effects and, you know, you don't always get to choose what you work on because you, you know, the company needs to take what comes in the door and mm-hmm. sign people as they see fit. And sometimes you get put on something you're not super excited about, but it pays <laughs> the bills. Yeah. Um, there've been a few of those where it's like, you're working with, um, you know, I was an animator as well. So I did a lot of uh, different films in that role. Um, there were plenty of them where it was, um, frustrating to say the least and there's been a few design jobs as well where you're working for someone who doesn't really have a good eye and really doesn't know how to articulate what they want and um, you have to keep a a smile on your face and and be helpful and try hard to please the person that doesn't really know what they're doing they might be very high profile too so you have to be kind of cautious as to how you react so th- these things have come up once in a while and they're um, they're not quite nightmares because you're still making neat stuff for a living, even if it's not your favorite job, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's not a great experience. And unfortunately for films, they have to get finished and released. So, so the blunt feedback on, on something you might've put your heart and soul into that, that can get tough. Blunt feedback or ideas that you, you know, in your gut are bad ideas but you have to go with them anyway because you don't have the authority to, you know, challenge somebody on their thoughts, <laughs> you know, because you're just a, an underling. Um, so, yeah, it's a service job too. You're trying to realize someone else's vision and sometimes you don't agree with it, you know. Right. So we have a few more questions. So Paul asks, Peter, you've worked on some of my favorite movies, Jurassic Park, Tremors 2, Starship Troopers, to name just a few. Could you share a behind-the-scenes story from one of these movies that serves as an endearing memory? Oh, my gosh. you got to tell me these in, in advance. 
<laughs> that's that's not fun. It's only fun if you answer them candidly. You know, I have a terrible memory. Um, I mean, there's plenty of cool memories, like being on location with Starship Troopers and and while you they're went filming. to Clendathu? Exactly. Yeah, in Casper, Wyoming. Um, that kind of stuff has always um, great memories, but endearing memories. I, I would have to say the times that I've worked with Guillermo, I've been there've been a lot of those moments because he's such a unique and special dude. And he's um, definitely a creature designer at heart too. You can he's an tell. artist. Yeah, he's an artist underneath. You know, he's like a when you work at, with him as a you know a professional geek like we are um he you know that he's like one of the group he's not like apart from that he loves the stuff just as much as you do so and he's a very warm guy so just hanging out with the guy and you know going to lunch and things like that and his reaction to your creativity is is always extremely heartwarming and encouraging because he's just so excited about it he'll like take you by the head and shake you because he's so excited about and jazzed about what you're doing and nobody else does that. So that's pretty endearing. He's just like this. Um, that's really wholesome too. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I mean, he's like, he can't contain his emotions sometimes when he's really into what you're doing and um, he'll just give you a huge bear hug. And um, that happened a couple of times and it's like, Holy crap, what's going on? This is a, this is so unusual for a, you know, in a work situation. And then you're like, yeah, you just really love the guy for it because he's uh, he's so genuine. There we go. All right, so Brandon's asked a question that we've kind of already answered. Just out of curiosity, were there any early concept designs for Draco's look? And how long did it take for the final design? Which I guess we didn't answer uh, fully. How long was Draco, would you say, was it a few weeks, a few months? To come the, up final, the final set? That final large maquette, the body and head part, I remember I had five weeks to sculpt. Wow, that's awesome. But and that's then, really impressive. Um, you pulled that off so quickly. Well, we kind of had the blueprint of the smaller maquette. So it was a matter of doing a neutral pose and blowing it up. And it was, you know, it's like trial by fire because I didn't really know what I was doing. I hadn't done anything like that. So it was a lot of uh, late nights. But um and we did, and Ron was doing the wing at the same time, which is also a challenge because that was a, a tricky design. But um, the sculpture part, I, I remember taking five weeks and then another couple of weeks to get a hard copy out. This guy, Danny Wagner from ILM, did the mold making for us. And, um, and then another two or three weeks to uh, paint up the first copy of that large maquette. And... Um, yeah, it was a marathon amount of work. It, it was a, you know, two and a half plus months to get that from start to finish, not including the original, the early design process. So it's, uh, yeah, it was a lot of work. Um, and it was kind of a, a lot of it was just me alone in a, you know, the shop until the, the wee hours trying to get it done. All right, so we have one final one for you here. It's Tom. So Tom says, Peter, I grew up watching this movie and it's an absolute classic. What inspired you to come up with the visual appearance of Draco, which we've kind of touched on? I believe a lot more modern day dragons such as Game of Thrones and even Monster Hunter have taken small snippets from the visuals of Draco to create their Drogons and Rathaloses. 
So massive shout out to you for inspiring the next generation of dragons. So That's cool. Yeah, Tom's a really lovely bloke. He's he regularly asks us questions. I will ask though, um, kind of off his question, do you have a dragon that you've seen recently that really struck your fancy and thought that was a really cool design, or just dragons cool in general? Uh I don't remember the name of the dragons, but the ones that they were riding and flying in um, Lord of the Rings. Do you remember those? The their their names. The, the fell dark... beasts that the Nazgul ride. Yeah, you know, over the swamplands. Yeah, they were, those are incredibly called... cool. And... Yeah, they, they were just subtly dusts. Fell beasts. Are, yeah, they are great. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm. I mean, the so... recent ones. The recent ones are all fantastic. I mean, they're so sophisticated, and you know, the level of detail they're able to get in them are. Is, is incredible now. Um, you know, the just like there's it's limitless how sophisticated and high quality this stuff can be now. It's like I'm, I'm jealous of the guys. Who, you know, I know some of the guys who worked on the uh, Game of Thrones stuff, and um, you know the the Emmys and things they've won are, are well deserved. Um, I can't pick a favorite really. They're all pretty impressive. Um, the old days, yeah, or older days, the the, the Lord of the Rings version uh pretty impressive um uh i almost got a chance to work on the the hobbit when guillermo was attached to it so that would have been exciting too but unfortunately that those plans changed for him uh at a certain point um at least i got the job offer i didn't i wasn't able to take it but um that's an interesting yeah, dragon too small huh it's an interesting dragon and design too, because Smog originally had the four feet like Draco does and wings. And you can see that in the Hobbit when he's knocking down the door because the special effects shots that were used at the time have his paws. But, right. uh, you know, in the later films, he just has the handy wings. Right, right. Oh, yeah. there's your Smog. Wow. This is, this is a version I did just for fun. Um, my free time years and years ago and um i had worked on a, the reason i got in touch with guillermo is because i got in, i was working on something that he had produced and I, I asked the director to slip him this this drawing i did when i heard that guillermo was possibly doing the hobbit and um, um that's how i got to to meet and start working with him um now this is based on nothing you know it's like i, I hadn't even read the books so I, I just said i'm gonna just do a dragon and, and see if i can send it over to him i get um, the impression you didn't know that smog talked looking at his yeah. mouth well this would be the magical kind of talking without a All bunch right. of lips you know well I, I i think you can get away with it because macaws talk without lips don't they sure and it's it can be magical and effective that way but um yeah that um that would have been a fun thing to be part of, but um, wasn't to be. Okay, so we had one more question, which I asked in advance. Um, this doesn't necessarily uh, come to you, Peter, but we had to tap Patrick Reed Johnson for this. And it was, what is Draco's real name? Now, mm -hmm. before I give you Patrick's answer, you are welcome to give Draco a real name if you want. <laughs> but, um, 
Yeah, he doesn't have one. That's the gag. So um, Patrick uh, came out and he kind of shocked a few of us. So uh, he never actually decided, this is quote, so never actually decided on a specific name. And in point of fact, I always held that dragons, like other animals, other than humans, had no real purpose for proper names, but would instead be identified by their sounds or behaviors. Mm. And I felt Draco's rather prideful remark about human language being insufficient to the task of pronouncing his name might have actually been his way of avoiding having to admit that he, in fact, did not actually have a name, which I thought was very cheeky and in keeping with the character. But that's, well, that's some people a... really put some thought into this stuff. It's uh, I'm sure that a lot of the people that listen to this know know a lot more about the film and the, all the lore and everything surrounding it than I do. It's um, people get so deep into this stuff. For me, it's yeah. like it's, these are exciting jobs, but then you move on because you're busy, you know, and it, you don't focus as much on it. But yeah, that's cool to hear. I had no idea, and I always thought that the name Draco was kind of odd anyway because it isn't it just like, you know. Just Latin for dragon. Yeah. Well, yeah. He does uh, make that comment in the film, to be fair. But um, from what I understand, Rob Cohen, and you may be able to corroborate this a little bit, there was originally supposed to be a lot more star dragon in Dragonheart. So, star dragon meaning? So, when Draco, when he's basically talking with Bowen about how they're swindling, you know, townsfolk. Uh Right. And he's twirling through the air and whatnot. Rob Cohen knew the end of the story and he knew that Draco was essentially going to turn into star stuff. So his thought process was that as Draco was twirling, he would momentarily become a little bit ethereal and Mm. be a little bit star stuff while he was doing this. Mm, So again, the whole star mentality and Draco being given that name, he probably would have been okay with it. But as the lore um, goes on during that production meeting, I think Tippett was like, you do realize that's not going to work. <laughs> so it just went to Draco with just aerial acrobatics and then landing to walk next to Bowen because doing the star effect twirling took it a little bit out there. Whereas, that would add to the budget a little bit too much. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, like you save it for that big finale too, where he does become star stuff sorry folks spoilers but in terms of like the lasting effect of Dragonheart I think that it is a testament to the film that if you go on IMDB there are 97 658 IMDB users who have taken the time to rate Dragonheart oh really yeah and it's actually got a pretty darn high rating um the median rating is seven which is definitely a lot better than a lot of other dragon films for sake of argument i actually went and looked at reign of fire versus mm-hmm. dragon heart because both of them i really enjoyed that one reign of fire is a great film and if it had been released at a later date i am confident christian bale gerard butler and um Matt. matthew mcconaughey yeah would have drawn loads of crowds likewise if Dragonheart had been released today with effectively half the Harry Potter cast, um, that's an exaggeration, folks, but you'll see when you look at the cast, like when they're in there, like if it was to be released today, people would gobble that up. So when you rate them side by side, Dragonheart actually ascends past Reign of Fire. And 
speaking in demographics wise, it's also split very evenly down the middle in terms of how much both male and female audiences have enjoyed it because it does have fairly significant and strong female characters in Dragonheart. Mm -hmm. And there isn't necessarily a romantic attachment there either. It's just a strong female character in her own right. So in terms of passing a lot of tests, like we said, like in terms of, it may not be overtly family friendly, but it does have that Goonies sort of vibe where there's like an element of risk, but at the same time, it's quite fun. And then yeah. it also well, has they definitely had to, yeah, they definitely had to keep uh, big effects films into the the family PG realm back then. I think uh, a rated R is kind of a kiss of death for those kinds of movies. So they, yeah. did, they definitely had to think in terms of big audience. You know, yeah, it, it, it it's, it's cool that people still um, remember it fondly. Yeah, I mean, there's. Some of it doesn't hold up for me as far as filmmaking goes. I mean, some of it's a little bit, eh, you know. Oh, now you've kicked over a rock. Yeah. What? What? <laughs> I mean, it's lots of lots of little things. It's like, you know, Dennis Quaid had an accent for about 10 minutes of the film and <laughs> disappeared kind of like, you know, Princess Leia. A bit of a men in tights um, sort of thing going on there, yeah. Yeah, it's like, are you Scottish or, nope, nope, just back to American California guy. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, it's that's the thing. It's like, it's a special effects driven films are, you know, getting something that's fun, eye candy and a good film at the same time is not, you know, as common as people would think. It, I've worked on so many really fun to work on movies that weren't actually good films. You know, mm-hmm. you just kind of, you do it because you love the craft more than anything else. And, and you really hope it's going to be good. But, um, you know, if you work on, you know, like I've worked maybe on fifty-something movies, maybe closer to sixty, and it's such a small percentage of them that um, are actually good movies. <laughs> you know, they're entertaining, but you know, in terms of high-quality filmmaking, it's uh, you're lucky if you get um, like this seven or eight rating that Dragonheart got, and. Um, yeah, it's cool though. It it feels good. I, I I hear from people once in a while that it meant a lot to them, and that you know they saw it when they were like ten year old kids and stuff. And um, it's cool because that's you know what got me in, into this stuff too is being a ten year old kid seeing Star Wars and being completely blown away and inspired to uh, chase a weird dream and um, you know try to get into that stuff. Um, so it's it's kind of cool to have a little piece of something that also inspired other people. I think if 97,000 people give an overwhelmingly positive response, yeah, who, many, who cite the, many cite the dragon as being one of their favorite bits. I think you yeah, definitely yeah. touched on fame there. I yeah. will say I recently showed Dragonheart to my kids and Draco was at the center of many of their favorite gags throughout the movie. The one that I think had them all in stitches was it doesn't get any deeper when he goes into the uh, river and he's expecting to swim away, quote unquote, dead. Oh, yeah. But it's not deep enough for him to get away. And all of like, the guys are like, meat. So <laughs> that was good. They uh, also really enjoyed the uh, giant roar scene where uh, Bowen is saying, would you rather, you know, 
this happen or would you like to deal with him? And then, of course, on cue, Draco gives an almighty roar, spits flames and waves his wings around like in an overly dramatic gesture, like now that yeah. you've known him. I think my <laughs> I think one of my favorite gags in uh, Dragonheart was a very subtle one, but it's a thing where you'd almost expect a dragon to do. And it's a great character moment for Draco. It's when they're sitting down like when they're around that campfire, Draco and Bowen, and Drake and Draco is just watching Bowen make fire, which for him is the simplest thing in the world. He's just pondering, like, wow, these guys really have to go through a lot of effort to do this, don't they? He's like, you know, I really can. And then um, Bowen gets up for a second, and then Draco just puts his pinky like over one nostril, just, <laughs> which I really enjoyed. But I think that dragonheart's real magic and he did a fantastic job with creating that character yeah we did a lot of um tippet studio did a lot of animatics and previs for that movie as well so a lot of that stuff was sort of scoped out at um at our studio some of the bigger sequences were done in kind of a, a low res cg sort of form so yeah there's there's some good gags in there and some good good ideas some great gags Maybe needs a reboot someday. That's um, oh, has it been rebooted? There are a few tried. <laughs> direct releases. We'll call them. I can't. I can't even look at them. Yeah, I, I remember know. being enormously excited for the second one and watching it, feeling somewhat deflated at the end. However, <laughs> some of the latter ones. I don't think I got to the end on that. Yeah, some of the latter ones, like because there's five Dragonheart movies now. Oh, are they? Uh, yeah. So um, that may come as a shock to some folks. But <laughs> there are some where they kind of go back a little bit to like the root mythos. But I don't think any of them touch on the character development that Draco had or the facial expression that you gave the character. Because when you look at the other dragons, they look like dragons. Their, their faces are narrow. They aren't broad like Draco's. And I think some of them, they took elements of Draco's design to be like proto-Draconic or proto-Dracos because a lot of them are in the past because Draco was presumably the last, so they would be in the past. But um, I don't think that they capture the same amount of magic. Hmm. But unfortunately, we have reached the end of this episode, so we will have to say thank you. But before we do, we will go over our favorite segment, if nothing else, where we give suggestions on things to check out. So I think we can both say is don't check out the sequel to Dragonheart. <laughs> you might be able to look at some of the latter ones on Wikipedia and decide for yourself, but maybe not the sequel. Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe people have time to kill. Yeah, what's to check out? I don't know, man. I, I, I'm watching the same things everyone else is um, in terms of entertainment and all that stuff goes people should check people should definitely check out the place i work for um cauldron studios which is under the umbrella of probably monsters which is a, a new game studio uh up here in the seattle area and so they're they're putting out all kinds of great games soon it's like a brand new company so it's lots and of what's stuff the name of this company the uh, the overarching the, the uh, parent company is probably monsters probably monsters yes and uh the studio within that uh parent company that i work for is called cauldron and that's um 
we're a new company making a, a new game and um, if people are game artists out there, various kinds, they can check out the uh, the jobs page and see what we're hiring for still. There's still positions of all kinds. Oh, fantastic. Uh, other than that, I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, I keep, I, I work, uh, I do a lot of concept art these days and 3D stuff and I'm, you know, trying to keep putting things out into the world through um, social media and ArtStation and um, so people can check my stuff out there um, just under my name on ArtStation or Koenig Arts, um, Instagram and Twitter. Um, but yeah, other than that, what, what cool stuff is out there to check out? I don't know. What have you heard? Well, I will give I will give our listeners something niche to hunt for. So there was mm. actually a Dragonheart novelization, mm. and it was by Charles Edward Pogue, and it was based on the screenplay, which uh, Patrick kind of had a hand in too. But what it does is it kind of corrects one criticism of the film, which is that the characters seemed a bit two-dimensional, a bit cliche. There sure. wasn't enough characterization time for them. Which, to be fair, the movie, you know, it jumbles along at a nice plot pace and it's pretty cut and dry, which is, I think, why it has such a broad appeal to younger audiences and why it's, it's such one of those great films that you can just turn on. Yeah. But anyway, um, it is darker, longer, and has more characterization. So it is the Dragonheart novelization by Charles Edward Pogue, and it is somewhat hard to find. So if you are a Dragonheart fan, you can go looking for that one. There was also a junior novelization. It's not in the same tier, apparently. But um, do check out Dragonheart. You can stream it on Amazon. That is the widest venue uh, to attain it, other than just buying it by DVD or Blu-ray. Um, Amazon, it is not included with Prime. You do have to purchase it. So it's good enough for that. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, in terms of mytholo- mythologies, which you can examine... Um, which may have a dragon or two upcoming, you never know. I will recommend The Rings of Power, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, I love the books. I have read The Silmaron. I will tote that as you know my token credentials. I've actually done that. I'm enjoying it. I am not diehard, but it is fun. And seeing sneaky I like references. Their, I like their creature designs in that one. They're really nice. Yeah, yeah, I've seen. They, take, they took a different... Uh different tack in terms of uh, body shapes and things like that. It's really, it's really cool to see. I do like the hint that Prince Durin gives that uh, when they are mining for Mithril, and I apologize for spoilers folks, but um, they're mining for Mithril. And he says, my father has, you know, closed off that part of the mind. We need to be very careful there. And of course he is referring to Durin's Bane, which is the Balrog seen in the Fellowship of the Rings. So it's nice to get, little nods like that in the show so i will endorse that i will endorse a hearty helping of Dragonheart. and <laughs> if you are lucky you can find the novelization and tops put out two comic books because joe likes to recommend books that nobody can find so <laughs> anyways check those out peter is on art station you can see a load of his work and it is absolutely fantastic Peter, thank you again so much for for coming on. We greatly appreciate it. I appreciate it. it. Yeah, folks. Thank you so much. Keep it kaiju.